We also use science and data. I know that you all have a public health background, so we use the science of spatial epidemiology as well. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we don't see a lot of people using. So spatial epidemiology at a baseline, we know the demographic characteristics, the socioeconomic characteristics, the average lifespan, et cetera, of any particular neighborhood. Then you can layer that with disease prevalence data, and then you can layer that with other assets that people may utilize. Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Edelisa Martin, owner and CEO of MNB Sciences, and you are listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast. You're listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for all things public health and global health. From the sustainable development goals to the social determinants of health, as well as interesting dialogues about the diverse career opportunities that exist in these fields. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so other people like you can benefit from our content. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not necessarily represent any of the agencies or organizations we work for or are affiliated with. My name is Gordon, your host for this episode, along with LaShawn Benedict as my co-host. So you talked a lot about the disparity in terms of volunteer participation in clinical trials and some of the reasons for that. With the diversity piece and the underrepresentation of some groups, can we delve a little bit deeper in terms of what are the reasons those specific populations are not participating? Are we looking at the recruitment methods not being tailored to the specific populations? Are there preconceived notions in those populations about clinical trials? What's really going on there? Oh, goodness. It is multifactorial. Mm. (laughs) I wish there was a simple answer. Some of the reasons are hesitancy in the population. I think, though, those biases are somewhat in the diverse populations, but it's also in the practitioners that have this bias that, okay, maybe this is a person of color. I know people of color don't like to participate in clinical trials, so I'm not even going to ask them. So we see that bias on both sides. So I think it's kind of that historical perspective. I think that sometimes it's geographical where we see clinical trials, we see hubs where there's a concentration you know, on the East Coast at academic medical centers and the same kind of people being involved over and over and over. I think part of it also is a lack of diversity in the investigators and in the clinical Mm -hmm. trial staff. There is lots of research that shows us in healthcare in general that people tend to gravitate to practitioners that they can identify with. So whether you're black or LGBTQIA or whether you're Hispanic or whether you are disabled, you tend to gravitate to people who are like you. And so when we don't have a heterogeneous mix of principal investigators where a person can go and they see themselves, then sometimes we've seen that those interactions when there's racial concordance, for instance. So if a black female goes to a black female doctor, those interactions are richer. They are less didactic. There's more preventive care 
that is received. And so it really matters in healthcare and in clinical trials. So yeah, I would say kind of historical lack of diversity in, in the staff and overcoming biases and not kind of what I said before about letting go of the, of the past. In our work and doing focus groups, we've actually spoken to people, people of color who say, I'm willing to participate in a clinical trial. No one's ever asked me. I've never heard anybody mention clinical trial to me, but I am willing to participate. So overcoming those biases that people have as well. Wow. And overall here, we're talking about diversity, right? And when we're talking about diversity, we're talking about diversity across a bunch of different areas, race, ethnicity, gender, etc. So when we're talking about having representation in these clinical trials, is there a certain concrete goal or quota that we're trying to reach in terms of representation across all these different domains? Is that kind of the goal of this? You know, I wouldn't say that there's a quota that we're trying to reach. I think the most important thing is that you've got to look at the disease that's being studied. And Mm. what is the baseline characteristics of the people who have that disease state? And that's what Mm. you would want to try to replicate in a clinical trial setting. COVID, for instance, it was great that there was a concerted effort made and we did have, I would say anywhere from just thinking of black participation, nine to 10% of the participants were black, but we had 25, 25% of the people getting COVID were black. So what you really want to do is, and and probably 30% of the people who were dying were black. So what you really want to do is try to replicate whatever the baseline demographics of that disease state. So if we were looking at cystic fibrosis, for instance, you wouldn't expect a population that was 60% black. Um, So you really want to look at the baseline demographic characteristics of the disease, whereas sickle cell, for instance, of course, you'd want a very high percentage of black people. Mm -hmm. And I think you did give the example of lupus earlier, Mm -hmm. too, with black women disproportionately being affected by the disease. And in that particular trial, it was nowhere near. Right. So you should have had a disproportionate enrollment of or of uh, black female participants in that in that trial. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, this is what I would consider the juicy part. So I know we're talking to the CEO of M&B Sciences and part of the calling card there is innovative strategies Mm. to bolster recruitment. And so how are you going about doing this? I know you mentioned that you wanted to leave a legacy, be involved in very impactful work. So what does this really look like on the ground? So some of the approaches that we use, I mean, it really is a combination of things. As I said, the problem is multifactorial. So you really have to do things that address those different areas. Of course, we have technology that is at the forefront of what we do. We actually have a mobile app called Neighborhood Trials that people can download to search for clinical trials, the next iteration of that, which we should be launching soon, is actually gonna have a feature where if you are a family member or church member, you can look for a clinical trial for a person and be able to share those results to them. So technology, we also use science and data. So I know that you all have a public health background, so we use the science of spatial epidemiology. 
as well. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we don't see a lot of people using. So spatial epidemiology at a baseline, we know the demographic characteristics, the socioeconomic characteristics, the average lifespan, et cetera, of any particular neighborhood. Then you can layer that with disease prevalence data, and then you can layer that with other assets that people may utilize, such as clinics, and, you know, for COVID, we looked at the COVID-19 testing facilities. Or you may look at, for one disease, for instance, we were looking at a kidney disease that predominantly affects people of Afro-Caribbean descent. And so pulling in, well, where are the AME churches or things of that nature that you can layer on? And then you can put in hospital discharge data. So all of these rich data sets that we're stacking on to be able to kind of pinpoint, well, where's a good hotspot for targeting? Where does this population live? So we can use that to inform what the patient recruitment efforts can be. And so that is one of the kind of unique approaches that we have as well. Now, we'll use data science, we use digital marketing. Of course, every patient recruitment firm these days, that's just at a baseline. You have to be able to do digital marketing. So reaching people through you know, Facebook platforms, Instagram, Reddit, Core, whatever the platform is that people are using. LinkedIn, possibly for health you know, care professionals. So we have to be able to do that as well. But I think another thing that we do is utilize community organizations who are in that community as well. So sometimes by kind of innovating, kind of going back to the ASCO talk that I heard where every time there's an innovation, you're also creating a disparity. Well, when we only target using these innovative technologies, digital marketing, et cetera, you unintentionally leave people behind. Mm -hmm. So we still do have that grassroots approach where we're working with community organizations who are already serving the people in their neighborhood through education initiatives or housing initiatives, et cetera, or faith-based organizations to be able to reach people at the grassroots level. So it really is a combination approach. And then I would say the last thing is that we've actually created a program to educate naive investigators or people who want to be investigators in clinical research, but they don't have really a way. So the NIH says there need to be different on-ramps for people who want to get into clinical research. But we know a lot of this is around fellowships for people who are in medical school. But what about that practitioner who's been out there 15 years already and is not at an academic medical center? If they're interested, then how do they get involved? So we actually have a training program for people who want to learn how to do clinical research. So it's multi-pronged. Wow. Yeah. I mean, those seem like very powerful tools, especially the spatial epidemiology. Yes. One. That sounds really great how you could keep overlaying different layers to that to find out and investigate more about the local populations. But I'm wondering... In all that data that's available, do individuals with more of these rare diseases get lost in the mix of being able to isolate and find them in order to recruit them to get in the trial? Like you mentioned, not sure if lupus would be considered a rare disease, but being able to find more individuals from certain groups of rare diseases to be able to get enough patients and data to be able to come up with stronger conclusions during these clinical trials. Is that something we struggle with in the industry right now? Rare diseases, we definitely do struggle with rare diseases. I mean, mm. just they're rare, so they're harder to find the mm. patients. And 
Oftentimes, if the patient population is small, there may be competition for this same population across many different clinical trials. But one of the things that can be done is really utilizing hospital discharge data, electronic medical record data to try to, you know, target where, you know, the, the data is de-identified. So don't, you know, people don't have to worry that their specific information is being shared, but at least you may know where the geography is, where a patient with this particular disease may reside in a general, you know, in a general way. Creating patient registries is one of the things that we've done to try to address the gap in rare diseases. So creating a registry, you may have people enroll and be part of that database, even when a clinical trial is not ongoing, so that when a clinical trial does come around, then you have data on the people who have that particular disease. And so maybe you're maybe more effectively able to reach them. But it is challenging, and so there are some approaches to that, but there's still a lot more work that needs to be done in the rare disease space. Yeah, and and just one of the things I'm thinking about in the back of my mind as you explain the complexity around clinical trials and go through the process, and we're talking about some of these recruitment strategies is, let's say we go through one of these clinical trials with one of these rare disease medications or interventions, and we're getting towards that recruitment piece And I can't imagine how much investment and resources are going into these clinical trials for that close to the end step of when recruitment comes in and maybe you don't have enough people to show that efficacy or effectiveness of those interventions. And I can't, and it it, it pains me to say that, is is it the case that these companies are just saying, oh, sorry, there's not enough people here. We might have to ax this whole project. I I, I hope it's not getting lost there, you know? Well, that is an important point. So there is a, an organization called NORD. You may be familiar with it. And, and I, for the life of me, I can't remember what N and O stand for, but R and D stand for rare disease. But they say that over 70% of the rare diseases have no treatment. So it's, it's difficult because some of these diseases are ultra rare, you know, with less than you know, 10,000 people or whatever in the world that may have Mm. it. And I may be saying the wrong number. That's just an example. And so to be able to find them and they qualify for the trial. And then, as you all know, you want to have the ability, if you're randomizing, to tell if something is statistically better or not. And that requires a certain number of people. So, so it is a challenge, and it is very unfortunate that there are so many rare diseases that actually have no treatment at all. So you presented an awesome case for what goes on behind clinical trials and the steps that MNB specifically is doing to recruit more diverse participants. For the people themselves on the ground, marginalized, vulnerable communities, Why should they participate in trials? In what surprising ways could participating benefit them? I know you touched on the example earlier about your family member, but in more general terms, what should people look forward to by participating in clinical trials? So some of the advantages to participating in clinical trials for kind of that everyday marginalized person One of the things that we talk about is the possibility for clinical research to be used as a care option. So Mm, in the case of my family member, this was actually the case. And you do find 
many participants in clinical trials that will share that they get better care and more attentive care when they're participating in a clinical trial than what they might have otherwise been able to get in their hometown or in their local community, et cetera. So actually kind of, as I said, getting that VIP treatment. So that possibility, as I said, of using clinical research as a care option to fill in that gap if you don't have medical care and to be able to get some type of treatment for that particular disease state. For everybody in general, I mean, just think of when you go to the pharmacy and get a prescription filled, every drug had to go through a clinical trial in order to be able to be there for you to receive it. So we have to have participants if we want to keep advancing in medicine and getting new therapies and new understandings. So I know it's kind of a altruistic for the greater good of mankind type of thought process, Mm -hmm. but I've heard people say that to me that I wanna be a part of this because I want to be able to contribute and advance medical care. So by participating, you're advancing medical care. It sounds kind of corny, but you're advancing medical Mm -hmm. care really for all mankind, because that is the only way we can know for sure whether something works or doesn't work, is it for it to be rigorously tested in a clinical trial. I would say you receive, you know, more testing, more diagnostics, you know, there's also stipends that are involved and it's not going to be a large amount of money. You're not going to get rich Mm -hmm. participating in clinical trials, but there should be some compensation for your time, for your effort. So most clinical trials will offer some type of stipend and really to that point of equity. And we didn't get too much into this particular point, but many sponsors will also pay for travel, gas, food. Um, And sometimes you have to do that from an equity standpoint because Mm. you can't say, okay, here's the clinical trial, come get it. If the person's having to take off from work or maybe they don't have transportation, sometimes the sponsor is finding you do have to do a little more to get that person in the clinical trial and in order to keep them there as well. But there will be Um, you know, there can be compensation for those type of things or at least reimbursement for those expenses. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. It's great to see the different benefits that people can derive from joining these clinical trials as well as helping, you know, local populations and, you know, people, I guess, as well. Yes. Bringing that all together and everything that you shared today, you know, you have a wealth of experience from all over the place was just wondering, what was your most surprising lesson learned throughout your career so far? You know, I would say one of my most surprising lessons is that in times when I felt like I was held back, it oftentimes was driven by me. (laughs) Mm. Explain. So having, as I talked about people having biases, thinking that maybe I wasn't smart enough to do something or this was too hard or black women don't do that. I don't see any other black women in the room. It's not comfortable. So when I realized that and coach myself, and it still is a coaching process at times because you, the way you're raised and things of that nature stay with you for, the, for your whole life, what women can do, what black people can do, that kind of thing. But when I coach myself past that and (laughs) 
one of the one of the things that really sticks with me is when I read Michelle Obama's book and she talked about going into a lot of these meetings. And this is what she said. She's like, you go in there and a lot of people are really not that smart, you know. So I'm not going to say not that smart, but I found out I was just as smart, just as capable mm. as anyone else who was in the room, as anyone else who was at the table. And so when I begin to have more of that confidence in myself and belief in myself, then I found out that it, I was less hampered from being able to move mm. forward and take those leaps of faith. Mm. So sort of that self-limitation was more of a factor than you originally thought. Yes, yes. Mm, so that was one of the surprising to, things because you I often hear pun, about external things holding people down, but mm -hmm. a lot of times people hold themselves down, themselves down and hold themselves back. So believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. That's a message. And speaking of messages, we're at the end, but we always like to ask one very important question before we end things. And that is, what are your key take-home messages for our audience listening? I would say the key take-home message is if you're interested in clinical trials, oftentimes you're not gonna be asked about it. So there are resources that you can go to. Clinicaltrials.gov is the gold standard. There are things, my company, as I said, has an app, Neighborhood Trials app that's on the Android and Apple stores. So look for some of that information yourself. You can ask your doctor to kind of help you make some decisions about things, and then just be willing to take that step. Clinical trials are necessary, they're useful for everyone, and it's the only way that we get new knowledge about how medications, diagnostics, procedures work. So look for clinical trials information, ask those questions of your of your doctor, your nurse, even maybe your pharmacist. <laughs> Just tap into that healthcare professional that you have access to and then be willing to kind of take that leap. So I say clinical trials are not for everyone, but there are more people who are interested in participating than are getting the opportunity. So sometimes you have to kind of dig into that for yourself. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. See you in the next one.